Hi, everyone. Welcome to Humans of AI. I'm Sheikh. On this podcast, we learn about the wide diversity of incredible people building and working on the technology that's slowly and quickly changing our world. Today's guest is Natalie Lambert, founder of GenEdge Consulting, where she works with marketing teams to empower them with generative AI. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You've had such an interesting career journey working in very different organizations and on a lot of different topics. Could you tell us your career story and maybe highlight what some of the inflection points were that led to where you are now with GenEdge? Sure. I always like to tell the one piece that you'll never see on my LinkedIn, which is that I actually started my nice career as a ballet dancer. Yeah. Ooh, interesting. You're the yeah. first ballerina I've talked to then. There you go. I love it. And there, there, we, we are out there. We are sprinkled around the world. But yeah, I started my career as dancer. And as any professional athlete, that yeah. means that you are training all the time. And mm-hmm. the challenge with that type of life is that you are never available when your friends are available. So imagine starting at eight years old, 12 years old, 15 years yeah. old. When I am, when everybody's available, I'm in the studio. When I'm available, people are not. So I needed to come up with some fun hobbies to keep myself not bored in those moments. And my fun fact is I created, and I taught myself to code and created a Ben Affleck website. He was hmm. my hero as a <laughs> or 13-year-old. I absolutely loved him. I'm from Boston. And I taught myself to code websites and oh. build a fear site. And when a stress fracture ended prematurely ended my ballet career, yeah. I was trying to figure out what to do with my life because my entire life I had been training as a dancer. But in the background, I like this computer thing. And I translated that thing in developing websites into a computer science degree. So I went to college as a computer science major and then ended up as an analyst at Forrester Research on the computing infrastructure team, helping the analysts at the company with their research and understanding some of the biggest pain points that were happening in the largest organizations in the world. And spent time, worked my way up through Forrester, was an analyst in the whole virtualization space for a long time mm-hmm. and decided it was time for me to try something new. And that's when I went to work for one of my favorite clients, which was Citrix. I absolutely loved the team at Citrix. They were just such a great group of people. And I made that shift from analyst to marketing mm-hmm. um, because when you're an analyst, you spend so much time walking in a customer's shoes, understanding their pain points. And it was just a really great shift to then be able to help build the technologies that mm-hmm. my customers at Forrester were, were leveraging. So did a whole bunch of different various stints in uh, marketing at Citrix. Uh, but the one thing that was something my husband and I always talked about is we moved to the Valley for me to start that Citrix job. But I wasn't taking advantage of what the Valley had to offer, which mm-hmm. was the whole startup community. Yeah. Um, and so when I had the opportunity to go run marketing at a startup, I felt it was something I just had to do. I had to check yeah. that box. And so I went to run marketing, which was such a great experience because I'd always been a product marketer. Mm-hmm. And so when you're running marketing, you now have to do all of those various other activities. You've got to help build websites, orchestrate a website, do lead gem, do email marketing, social media, operations. There's so many different pieces of that. And so it was just such a great opportunity to learn all areas of marketing mm-hmm. and did that. We had a really great run. And then we were acquired by Citrix. <laughs> so 
out. I didn't want to go back. I'm not saying nothing about the company. Just <laughs> so then I went to go work at a larger startup. And Brinson repeated the same thing. And that one was sold. And then had the opportunity to go to Google and go back to doing the work I knew well, the storytelling content, and leave the broad look of being at a startup behind. And it was great to go back to my work because as an analyst, you're writing, being able to go back to that was an incredible uh, shift for me. And then this past year, uh, I had the opportunity to try something new. They were looking for somebody to come in and figure out how to make Google best in class at using AI to improve our marketing. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we make Google marketers just the best at using these technologies? And so I got to... Be based on that breadth of skills that I had learned at the startups and all of the different areas of marketing, start to partner with all of these different teams and areas to figure out how can AI help here and had the opportunity to really chase down 20 to 30 use cases that AI could be applicable and figure out like, where is this technology good, great for? Where is it not as ideal for? Where is it saving you money? Where is it saving you mm -hmm. time? Where is it improving performance? Where is it improving creativity? And really chase that down. And it was just such a great, it was such a, a, a pinnacle of my career. It was such a great opportunity that I decided that I wanted to help more companies do yeah. this. So that's really where Gen Edge came from. It was that ability to go back to those analyst days and understand customer pain and research all the technologies, but take what I have been doing at Google mm -hmm. for so long and apply that to as many companies as possible. So it was each of those pieces, I can see how it led me to yeah. come here to be able to help companies really improve their effectiveness in their marketing teams. Seems like a very organic path when you look at it in hindsight. It's a very well-structured it does. And I will tell you, it didn't feel like that at all. <laughs> I mean, it definitely felt almost squirrel in pieces. Yeah. But it's funny, when you do talk about it, you can see how each piece led yeah. <laughs> to, to what was to come. Oh, that's awesome. Now, you obviously have a technical background in computer science. But when you started really diving deep into the world of AI, how did you train yourself on the fundamentals of that? Just. I know that sounds ridiculous, but just go in and play. When I started, when I was given this assignment and started at Google, I hadn't. Actually, that's not true. I had played with ChatGPT once, and I was trying to settle an argument with my husband, and I had asked ChatGPT some question, and it came back with some response, and we were laughing at the at the response. We're like, well, you know what? That's not bad advice. So I'd only ever used it for some of those more personal joking things. And so when it came to applying it to work, I had no I had no idea how to start. Yeah. Uh, I went into JackGPT, I went into Bard, and I just started asking questions. It started very personal. Where should I do X? How should I learn about Y? Whatever. And then every time you ask a question, I will tell you, you get a new idea. It sparks hmm. something new. It was incredible to me how probably three or four questions in, I realized, oh, I bet I could apply this work thing to this. The job I had at Google prior to switching to AI, part of that was running our blog. And one of the things we were always questioning is what are the right titles? What are the rights, whether it be the title of a piece of content, whether it be subtitles within. I also had the social team. 
and what creating all the social content for that. And it became very clear to me that AI could help us here. And it just, once you start diving in and start playing, I will tell you, you will pull that thread and it will keep taking you to new places and you'll start to find your work seen mm-hmm. in the reflections of those answers. And so that's how I got started. Oh. I just started asking a lot of questions. Yeah. Huh. When you were at Google, it seemed like you had a very broad and both empowering and potentially overwhelming job to see how to improve the marketing department with AI there. As you mm-hmm. were trying to identify what pilot projects were, what were some of the decision-making criteria you used to prioritize? So for me, there was a couple things. So you're right. It was overwhelming in so much as there was zero guardrails, There was zero guidance. So I had to start somewhere. So of course I started with what I knew best. So a lot of the projects that I worked on initially was with my previous team because I knew every single one of their workflows. So I knew how things worked, how long things took and how to apply. So we very quickly started with content, whether it be helping to build blogs or create social posts or create headlines for X, Y, and Z. And it was just very easy to get them to help me do anything because they were there. Mm-hmm. So I would say I just started with what I knew and mm-hmm. expanded. The next set of projects that I worked on, I'll never forget, there was an announcement that went out about my role. And the next day, one of the product marketers came to my office and said, I'm not going to lie. I'm scared to death of AI. It's going to take my job. Mm. And so I was like, okay, that's how you feel. You're my next project. (laughs) It's like finding these willing participants, whether they think they want to or not, want to explore (laughs) something and kind of pull that cord. Initially, it was just things that I knew or people that came to me about something. But then I started to really start to understand what the technologies could do. And I would seek out very specific use cases. Oh, that's awesome. Speaking of use cases, one of the things I recently learned about you is that you're a connoisseur of nachos and recently created what I think is the world's first GPT dedicated to nacho recipes. I I actually used it and found some amazing recipes for one was Nordic inspired nachos with rye chips and then a Burmese inspired nachos using chickpea flour and some tamarind sauce, which I'll experiment with this weekend. So firstly, thank you for creating that. Thank you for using it. (laughs) (laughs) But the question I have for you is obviously uh, these are super new and super exciting. And could you just tell us what your experiences were with building your own GPT and launching it? I want to tell you it took me weeks and months to plan this. I want to tell you it was so hard and it took massive skill and it took my love and enthusiasm for nachos (laughs) to be able to build that and no one else could do it, I'd be lying through my teeth. The whole thing took about 10 minutes. Okay. And it was incredible. So I'll be honest, I don't know how the results would be different, but I do have a website called The Inspired Ship, which is something my husband and I played around with during the pandemic. We don't have kids. We were looking for things to do. We made creative nachos and we would just make things up and I think ultimately we came up with 30, 40 different nacho recipes mm. over the pandemic. And I started to write them out. I actually haven't written them all out, but I wrote about a bunch. So when I had a base is my point. One of the reasons that the inspired ship slowed down in its content creation is because I just couldn't 
beat the ideas that I had the previous week. I have amazing fun. You set the bar too high. People going, yeah, like the creativity just wasn't there. When I set that up, I set it up with the knowledge base of the inspired shift to give it a sense of I'm not looking for just different creations of standard nacho because that's boring. I want Thai inspired, Chinese inspired. I mean, you're in Mediterranean, I have a bunch. So I gave it that solely by giving it a look. was not super creative, but I'm like, use this as a base and help me create things that are based on an ingredient or a region. And I had done a couple of different training prompts and I had told it, like, I always want the chips to be seasoned X way or all of that. And it was done. It really was the easiest thing. It's been incredible because I've had a, a bunch of people talking about using the different recipes. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I will say though, I did that A, for personal reasons, but B, I did in my new role, wanted mm-hmm. to take something that I think has such a business person perspective and give it to somebody can apply it and think about it in their personal life. And in showing that GPT to a few people, I had people come back to me saying that they had immediate ideas. Like they didn't Mm. even know these things were possible and they could now create a GPT to help them with their emails and communication style at Mm. work or to help them do something else. And I do think going back to how I got started, which is asking questions, pulling on a thread and then finding a work purpose, it is amazing just playing with something and realizing even if it's completely different space, you'll just start to think about how you can apply it to your work. And I've seen it over and over again with that Nacho app. Got it. Well, it seems all this AI for marketing stuff will be cute, but your real legacy will be nachos. I'm ready. If it can write a couple of great recipes that I can add to a cookbook, I will give AI credit and uh, we'll see how it goes. Awesome. Outside of... uh, you also write extensively about using various AI tools to build your business. Looking at some of the tools that you've recently started using, what are some of the ones that you'd say have had the biggest impact on your workflows? So I will say, before I say in the constant workflows, I had a full intention when I decided to go out on my own, build a consulting company. I had full intention to hire a designer, hire a web developer, and build out a web presence. I had full intention to hire a designer to logos and all of that stuff. And then I decided, no, here in AI, there's got to be tools that do this. And so I would say that initial step of using AI to help build a logo, help understand my color palette, help build a website to get that up and running in four days, mm-hmm. whatever it was, and $220, I'm talking to companies that are spending $10,000, $5,000. I'm sorry, $10,000, $15,000. And it takes four to six weeks to get these things up and running. I had an MVP in two to four days. Yeah. So if you talk about just how AI can have that immediate impact, I think that that is just incredible. And, and that is a one set of forget. I'm definitely adding more to what I do. Mm-hmm. But just having that MVP to be able to build on was hugely impactful to the work I do. I then take it to the day-to-day work for a lot of blogging. And I'm starting to get into video. I'm working mm-hmm. on it to show in two minutes how to use a tool to do X. Oh. In both of those examples, 
I use AI so much as my collaborator. So I don't know if you've read the post I did, but I really think when I break about the tasks and the mm-hmm. use cases that AI can help with, there's the ones that it can create for you. You can do the 80%. So think about my website. Like yeah. it did the 80%. I had to do words, but it was able to create a mobile and a desktop site mm. for me. It could create for me. There's then the ones that collaborate where you are going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It might not save time. It might not save money, but maybe you get a better result at the end. And then there's the tools that help you cultivate new skills. And so do something that you couldn't have done in the past. When I think about how I use AI on a day-to-day basis, it is that collaborator. It is the first, if I'm writing a blog, I tend to always write my own first drafts. I'm a writer at heart. That's not something I can give to the AI. But boy, why give that blog post to the AI and say, look, you're a marketing leader. When you read this, what questions do you have for mm-hmm. me that I haven't answered here? Or even the more basic, can you do a copy edit for this and make sure that all grammatically it's all right, it's in a professional tone, maybe it's a little whimsy in there, but that that, that focus is there. So I use AI to be that gut check. I am a team of one. I don't have a team that can help me with all of the standard edits and peer feedback that I would get in the past. Hmm. And so having it as that sounding board, so to speak, has been really helpful. And then taking that content and helping me with social posts. So I do tend to let it do a lot of the, the social. I find that it has way too many emojis. But but it can get, it it goes back to that creator. It can do 80%. So I feel like when I've written really great content, I can then turn it over to those different tools to help me build derivative content to get it out into different places. As you set up those initial workflows, it seems like you're leading with trying things out and lots of curiosity. But what are some of the, say, pitfalls or mistakes you've made along the way that you'd recommend a marketer just starting with AI tools to be conscious of? I'll say two, two very different categories of things. One is, I think a lot of people hear about AI being able to do a lot of writing. And Mm -hmm. so I see a lot of people who will like, I want to write a blog post on X and they'll hand it to an LLM and get this blog post in return. They're generally not great. If you don't, have, if you haven't really thought through what you want to write, garbage in, garbage out, good in, good out, yeah. great input, great output. And quite frankly, the opposite is true. And so people who will give up with AI because they've asked it for something and just gotten a really bad result, I think is one. A second thing that I would say is AI is not perfect. Someone said to me, I have no idea who did it, but it's who said it, but it's like, AI is like your intern. They know everything and understand nothing. And it's that idea that they can do all the research yeah. in the world and have that answer for you, but they don't understand it might not be right. Yeah. And oh, that's a great analogy. It, yeah, no, it's a great one. And one of the things that I really like to, how I think about it is it's, whenever you get something back, do not think, oh, AI created it. Let's just go ship it. You saw what happened with the lawyers who did that in New York. Like this stuff can hallucinate. And I've seen a lot of times when it's writing longer content, it'll go off in the most factually way possible, complete faucets. Hmm. And if you don't know that, you don't know to look at it. You don't know you have to be monitoring that. You won't pay attention. 
So I would say that's the number two is just making sure you always are that human in the loop and are paying attention. And the third I want to call out, because this one's very personal to me, is the bias in some of these tools. Yeah, I've seen bias in language and in pictures and things like that. But one of the things that I was doing at one point is I was creating a whole bunch of headshots, illustrations of headshots for a consistent look and feel at an event. Because if you're working in a big company, you're having an event, you ask all of the speakers to submit headshots. And it's just a different style. Some of the professional headshots, some of them are the candid on the beach, whatever the case may be. And uh, we wanted to use AI to bring a single look and feel to the event. So I found a prompt that really created an interesting illustration and that I assigned that prompt to every single photo headshot that had been given to us. And because I think there were eight male and two female speakers, I had done all the men first. And they all came out great. And when I started to do the females, there was a really glaring problem. The AI had turned them all to men. And it was a very, you see this output and you see the person in the same blue top, glasses, but like their hair's been cut off and they might have a facial hair. Like it just, and they're in a suit. Oh, that's fascinating. It was very, yeah, it was really fascinating. And, And not good fascinating, but fascinating. And I was looking at the prompts and it was because I used the word executive and Mm. these LLMs that get trained on the information that exists in the world. There has been, I have to assume, more males tagged with exec Mm. than females tagged with the word exec. And so I was like, okay, no good. I redid the prompt and said, okay, female executive to make it clear. What popped out was a bunch of images of women appropriately looking like the photo I had done, but in a full suit and tie. So it had fixed the facial look and feel, but now the attire was still a suit and tie. So ultimately, I found the word speaker, female speaker, had Mm -hmm. a woman in a nice dress or blouse or whatever the case may be. And what I would say is I could very clearly see when the first set of images outputted the woman really having a lot of male characteristics, but I didn't notice immediately the attire. Hmm. And so the whole point of the story is with the biases in these tools and people moving quickly and thinking they could do everything, not only should you be really paying attention to some of these details that you might not, have a peer reviewer have somebody notice things who, where you won't, because I was so excited that a woman popped out. I didn't even initially look at the attire. Hmm. And it did take someone to point that out because that's not where I was focused on. And so I think it, it just goes back to making sure that when you're using these tools, I think every single one of these has the human in the loop as that single thread across them that really should be focused on when using them so that you don't mistakenly publish or do something that you're not. Oh, that's a powerful story. It seems like you really need to be scientific about how you're constructing your prompts and almost have a version controlling there. But outside of adjusting the prompt, do you recommend any other ways that marketers can be conscious of different biases that might 
come up? Is there an a- aspect of different biases in different products or fine-tuning the models in a particular way for their own narrower use cases, things like that? Especially in the world of writing, I haven't, you know, I haven't figured out all the fine tuning and images other, other than a prompts, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, with that, you know, that the prompts are how I see being able to most adapt those. When it comes to things with the written word, one of the things I do a lot of, and as I give it a sample of previous work that I've written and that I like to try to emulate my style. And so it's just, so that if you're a very maybe shy and reserved person, you don't want the output to be like, yo, people, what's up? Like, shoppers <laughs> totally would say, I don't know. That's more in voice. But the point is, you know, that should like, definitely be your next post. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I'll, call, you know, I'll pitch this webinar yeah. or this podcast and that, but yo, people, watch this. But it's that fine tuning of giving it things you've done in the past that you're comfortable with to show it. So I use a lot of examples when I'm creating something in AI so I can get to a place sooner in which it sounds like me versus having to go around and around with it. Because I will say what AI is really good at is if you get something that you like in concept, but maybe it's not in your voice, it'll write it over and you can make it more professional. I do a lot of take out the marketing fluff because it writes a lot of that. And so I think that's a great way to start to get it to a place you want, but you do have the ability to give those examples to cut a lot of that out. Hmm. Interesting. Now, as a marketer diving into this world, there's obviously an explosion of tools that are competing for my attention. And if I'm Hmm. in a company, I'm typically working with a broader team how would you recommend I investigate which tools are worth using and how do I build the internal business case to use one tool versus the other to get a team-wide adoption? Yeah, that's a great question. Question, And I have an answer, but it's going to be so different because every company has so many different requirements around X, mm-hmm. Y, and Z. For me, I will tell you, there's a million amazing newsletters out there. You can sign up for any of them. You'll see them on LinkedIn all the time and you can follow. Yeah, yeah. Those daily newsletters would say, here are the top five tools today. And I'd literally just go create a free account and start playing to see if there was something that was interesting. I'm sure most people know, but I don't know how many most people know about this, but there's an AI for that. Dot com, mm-hmm. yeah. Like has they keep track of all the tools, so you can say I want something for copywriting, I want something yeah. for X, Y, Z, and it will give you a list of vendors that do that. I would just say go in and play. Some of the ones that I think have been really interesting are the ones that aggregate the hard work into a single tool. So there are a lot of marketing tools, whether it be your writers, your Jaspers, your N words, your copy mm-hmm. AIs that essentially take the prompt work out of the equation. And Mm -hmm. so whether you're trying to write a blog, a social post, whatever piece of written content you want, they just have a kind of a button you click on to create it versus you having to go through all of the, the various prompting or using a different tool for each. So I think for marketers, finding those tools that aggregate so that you're using less of them is always something then that was something that I would focus on to okay. if we're going to bring in a tool on a big company 
yeah. you're not going to bring in 30, but you're going to try to consolidate as much as right. possible. Huh. And so finding those tools that do as much as possible. Along those lines, outside of the just the cost and time savings implied by those tools, are there any other things you'd recommend emphasizing? Yeah. So I have this, there's four things that I look at when these, when it comes to these tools. There's three criteria that have hard numbers behind them and one that's much softer. Cost. How much did it cost you to do this task before? How much is the cost to do with AI? What's the delta? Time. How long did it take you to do something before? How long does it take you to do now? Performance. When you were doing it before, what was the performance of said activity? Mm-hmm. What's the performance after? And the fourth one is creativity. And that one, it's very hard to put a number around it, but it's one of those things you can feel it. You can see it. You you might get people to stay on a website longer. You might get people more engaged in an event. There's a brand boost when you do something creative, but it's less numbers. And so it's really evaluating each of those and recognizing that it doesn't have to be an even. So for example, there are times where there's activities that I've done where I was able to drop cost and drop time dramatically. Performance was the same. Creativity was the same. That's just a no-brainer or a lie. Then there are things that the cost might go up. The time might go up. um, But the creativity took you to a realm that was truly going to change brand perception. Hmm. And so it's not each of these have to be even. You don't have to get as much performance as you you know, paid extra money or vice versa. But it is a matter of looking at what you're looking to build and look across those four dimensions. Because I can tell you, even for me, I am a fast writer. I, it's what I've done for most yeah. of my career. I can write a blog and a, I know what I want to say. By the time I'm writing it, fingers to keyboard, I know exactly what I want to say. Now that I started to ask AI, poke holes in this, do X, do this, or have it copy edit, I actually take longer now to do some of that content than I did in the past. But I have to, I I don't have before and after metrics, but it's a better result. Don't solely look at it in the, the true numbers, but as an aggregate of what were the benefits of using AI to accomplish this task versus the old way, the previous way. That's awesome. Hmm. Uh, looking, using that framework, looking back on the types of customers that you have at Gen Edge or in your work before, hmm. are there any cool customer stories that you can share about the impact that things have had? Yeah, I, one example, I think everyone knows and understands the value of the standard written content. So I'll move away from that. I was working with a startup who had done, they had been at a couple of events and they had done surveys of the people who came to the booth. And we took those two, I think they were Google Sheets of the data and asked AI to consolidate them because it was the same questions in each event. And then we asked it to do a summary of all of the data and just Mm -hmm. give us the high level of what did the data tell us. And it went through, and, and just to be clear, we had taken out the customer names and information yeah, and all that. <laughs> but we had uploaded it and then had it do that summary. And then we had it visualize the data and then asked it to run some kind of simple modeling. And it did that. And then it asked us if it wanted us to do some of these extensive modeling. And quite frankly, there were modeling that I hadn't heard of before. And so I'd ask what it is and 
He's like, oh yeah, I want that. <laughs> I want that. And at one point it came back to us and said, it couldn't do one of the models because we didn't have some of the appropriate demographic questions and some mm. of the questions to start to build out for Simmons. So I was like, okay. And so I asked it, what questions would we need to ask in this survey in the future to be able to do this modeling to drive customer segmentation? And it provided us all of the questions. And I thought it was amazing that it could tell us the questions to ask to be able to do that modeling. And so I sent it back to the client and they came back to me with in the moment I had felt it was a really ignorant question was like, can, can it write out all of the answers for us? And I was like, no, every company's <laughs> different. It's not, I can't do that. But I, instead of saying no, I was like, oh, let's just test this, see what happens. And so I went back and I said, okay, you've provided us these seven questions that you want added to the survey yeah. based on the questions we asked in the past and what you're seeing in the data. Can you give us proposed answers? And it was a very technical product. And it came back and said, sure, and did five multiple choice answers or so for every single question. And I know the market of this client. And I looked at it, I was like, oh my God. Like, I would actually put it at more that more than the 80% and I sent it back. And that was something that I didn't even think it could do. Huh. Huh. And so it was this idea that by giving it a data set, having it do that high-level analysis, having us ask questions that we couldn't get answers to, that it could then help us revise the survey and give us the questions. It was just one of those mm. aha moments that you realize the power. You knew it was powerful. And yeah. then it's like exponentially more powerful in those moments. Sounds like the intern's going to get invited for a full-time gig. <laughs> huh. Yeah, awesome. exactly. Natalie, to close things out, I wanted to bring it back to the very first question I asked you. And while you were chatting, I took I took your LinkedIn profile, plugged it into ChatGPT, and asked it to asked it the same question. And so you tell me if it got it right. Okay, so thank you, you. So your background, according to ChatGPT, is Natalie teaches storytellers how to use the magic computer program to make their stories about products more exciting and fun like a captain guiding a ship to amazing adventures. <laughs> I love it. And if, if that is, if AI is that tool that makes it happen, there you go. <laughs> and, and you were right about emojis. In this one, there is a sunshine emoji and a rocket ship. That, if there's only two, that is less than most. <laughs> and I've gone back some with no joke, something like, I don't know, 2030. And it's absolutely crazy. I had a friend, I'm sure everyone saw when ChatGPT first came out that New York Times article. Yeah. With Kevin Maroos having that entire conversation with uh -huh. ChatGPT. And you remember all that. I had a friend who literally copy and pasted every emoji in that entire <laughs> And it was, it was this grid of, I don't know, 150, oh, 200 fine. some odd. It might be more emojis just lined up and yeah. you could see very clearly the personality that ChatGPT has. Oh, that's so cool. Well, <laughs> Natalie, this this was a super fun chat. Thank you so much for sharing more about your world and best of luck as you keep growing your firm. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by H10. Part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design, build, and manage it. 
H10 offers just that with an on-demand talent and management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load and make you the hero.